Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Welcome to class. Today we are going to be watching the videos for the Gates of Hades and the City of the Great King. It's uh, the video about Jerusalem. They don't really, uh, they go pretty well just because of the video series, but uh, since we put both of them together, it's going to be, uh, this, is, this will be the longest video that we have. And then after this week, we're going to be having shorter videos and more discussion time. So uh, the discussion time that we might not get to today, we are going to revisit next Sunday. And once again, there is uh, banana nut bread, banana chocolate nut bread. Anyway, there's uh, some sweets in the back if anybody wants some. Uh, I'm going to read the announcements and then pray, and we will start the video. Uh, actually, I think we have a scripture personally. Uh, this upcoming uh, Wednesday night is the Hymn Sing and Ice Cream Contest. Not to be confused with the Ice Cream and Hymn Sing Contest, which I think would be interesting. Um, but if you have some homemade ice cream and can bring it by the pavilion by 7 p.m., and I think I heard if it rains, it's going to be in the gym. Uh, and the family prayer concerns, Bob Brannon is in rehab at Woodcrest at Blakeford in Burton Hills. Catherine Broadway is diagnosed with aggressive adenocarcinoma cancer. Um, Liam Dean, nephew of Susan Knox, had a successful skull surgery in Birmingham uh, July 18th. And Becca Doris continues to suffer from multiple health problems, and prayers would be appreciated for all of these. Uh, if you would, please bow, and I'll, I will uh, kick us off the prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gorgeous day we have today and the, the warmth that we get to feel uh, on our skin and the joy that that can bring and, and a reminder of you and your son and the light that he brought to this world. And God, just bless this time together and bless uh, the, the prayer concerns that are needed. And uh, thank you so much for uh, your son's sacrifice. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. So one of our scriptures for today, Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26. So then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? When a student completes a course of instruction, there's usually some kind of ceremony that we call a graduation. Well, Jesus had students too. He called them disciples. They didn't have a graduation as we would understand it, but there was an event in the life and ministry of Jesus which I think was very similar in many ways, an ending point and a starting point. It took place at the pagan city at the foot of Mount Hermon called Caesarea Philippi, a city notorious for its evil. Testament times is Caesarea Philippi. To the east of us here, the heights, the Golan Heights, or the heights of Bashan, the mountains of Bashan, where the half-tribe of Manasseh was in biblical times. To the northeast, Mount Hermon, 
coming down like a long narrow ridge from over 9,000 feet down to where it ends, just beyond where we are here. You can see what could be called the foot or the base of Mount Hermon. We're down in the beginning of that Aravar Rift Valley, we call it, the Rift Valley that starts here and runs all the way down into southern Africa. So in a sense, we're in the, in the lower valley, the Rift Valley, between the mountains of Lebanon there to our west and the Golan and Mount Hermon to our east. Now, we're at a particular location where the Jordan River begins. The Jordan River actually begins with three springs, and this is what we know here as the Banyas River, and it's the eastern fork of the Jordan, and eventually it flows and meets the other two, and the three of them go on into the Sea of Galilee and then out the other end of the Sea of Galilee. In 2 BC, Herod Philip, now that's another son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great being the one who built Jerusalem, being the one who built Caesarea on the seacoast, and this northern and eastern part of Israel had fallen to his son Philip. He was not a king, he's called a tetrarch, which is a little bit lower than a king, but he functioned pretty much as a king in this part of the country, and this area had fallen under his control. He decided to build a city here at the foot of Mount Hermon. What made this location significant though, even prior to Herod Philip, had to do with what's located in this area and how the religions of this particular culture uh, were carried out. Now, in Bible times, the tribe of Dan that we talked about when we studied Samson decided that it was too much for them to deal with the Philistines down there, so they moved, began to look for a place, and they came to this area. And they said, this is like the Garden of Eden. Here was water and lush and trees and just beautiful, just beautiful surroundings. So the tribe of Dan said, we'll build here. So they built a city just west of us called Dan. <coughs> it happens to be the place when the two nations divided in half that became the high place where King Jeroboam put the golden calf. As far as the archaeologist is concerned, these are the steps of the Bemah, B-E-M-A-H, or B-E-M-A, <coughs> which is the high place itself where the god was. Here you go up the steps, and if this is original, and I'm telling you the archaeologist says it is, including some of the floor stones, at the top of these steps, he put the golden calf. So this was a religious center. Now why was this a religious center? Well, we have to remember that the culture worshipped a fertility god. And the fertility god is the god who provides fertility or water. And when you look here at this enormous amount of water, you're led to say, for life to be there you need water. Life comes from God, so where there's water, that must be where the god is. And so this was a very religious area, particularly in the worship of Baal. In fact, there's even evidence that the, the god Baal was worshipped here at this particular location. Now, by the time of Jesus, Baal worship was pretty well outdated and gone. The Greeks had stopped the infant sacrifice for sure, and the Romans had probably uh, stopped most of the rest of it. However, what happened in New Testament times 
is that through the Greek influence and the Roman influence, they continued to worship the fertility gods of the Greeks. This particular location was where they worshiped the shepherd's fertility god named Pan. And against this cliff, you'll see a number of niches carved into the rock. There are at least five of them. And that became a place where they worshiped the god Pan, who was the fertility god of the New Testament. Now that made this a pagan shrine. Now one other thing that I should tell you, this spring ran out of that cave. So you have to imagine this beautiful source of water tumbling down out of that cave and flowing through here in this stream, which is much bigger even in the springtime of the year. In 1837, there was an earthquake, the cave collapsed, and today the spring runs out of the foot of the cliff, just up a little ways from where you can see the water. It doesn't come out of the cave anymore. But so here you have this huge temple up there where they worship their gods. In fact, you could refer to this large cliff here even as the rock of the gods because they put the idols dedicated to Pan right there in those niches, in those religious windows. And that's what people came here to practice, the immorality of the fertility cult. So that sets the stage. South of here, not very far, just 20 plus miles, Jesus had been doing his ministry. He had ministered in that little area of Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin gone down to Jerusalem, he's told his parables, he's been in the synagogues as we saw at Gamla, and he's taught his disciples, and he's ready to move on to finish that ministry. Before he goes to die, however, he brings his disciples here. Now that ought to raise some eyebrows. What is that rabbi with his 12 disciples coming here to this very pagan place? Why choose that place? Well, it's safe to say he's probably looking for a quiet retreat place. But I think there's more to it than that, and I'd like to pick up with that story in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked them, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Now, notice this answer in light of the fact that on this rock, on this cliff face, were these pagan idols to the worst kind of fertility practices you can imagine. I mean, immorality that even in our culture would be called immorality. Peter says, you are Christ, that is the anointed Mashiach, Messiah, the one who's been anointed by God to be his Messiah, the son of the living God. You are the son of the living God, not these. The living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Jesus stands here somewhere, and he says to his disciples and to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. I'd like to have you think about what that means. In the Catholic tradition, they've said, well, the rock is Peter, so the church is built on Peter and his work. Traditionally, in the Protestant faith, we've said that the rock on which the church is built is Peter's confession. But I think if you understand the geography, 
and you come here and appreciate what this place meant, you'll understand that there's an additional concept that Jesus has in mind. I think he was also saying, on this rock, meaning the rock where the gods are, the rock representing the paganism of his culture, the rock representing the fertility practices, the negative ungodly values of his culture, on this rock I will build my church. In other words, in a very confrontational way, saying, my church is going to come and take the place of the paganness of this. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of a neat image, but are you sure that's what Jesus is saying? Well, I'd like to have you think about the very next phrase in Matthew. He says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. In a sense, what was practiced here was the worship originally of the Canaanite god Baal, who every year went down to the underworld to a place called Hades, where he spent the winter, hopefully coming back to life in the spring. So in a sense, he's called Beelzebub. What is Beelzebub? Beelzebub is the lord of the underworld, the god of the dead, the god of hell. And Jesus even refers to Beelzebub, or Baal, as the devil. This could be thought of to be called the gates of hell. In fact, I found an interesting reference in the rabbinic sources which said when Messiah comes, the gates of Caesarea Philippi will collapse because of the wickedness and the paganness of that particular place. And Jesus may have even had that in the back of his mind. So he says the gates of hell will not stand against the church. Now I'd like to have you picture that image. The church, the church of Jesus Christ, and the gates of hell not prevailing against the church. What's the image in your mind? Do you see the church as a huge fortress, towers and strength, and the devil pounding against the church, but never being successful? And I want you to listen to the image. He says, I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail or will not stand against it. And now, having studied the city gate at Gezer, having sat in the city gate at Lachish, going to the city gate of Tel Dan, in wartime, what do gates do? They defend. So if the gates of hell will not stand, who is attacking whom? Is the image of the church like a fort that is keeping the devil out? I would say that's absolutely backwards. The image that Jesus says is this. On this rock I will build my church, meaning his faith, his way, is going to replace the very power or religion or strength of the devil. And he goes on to say, and the gates of hell will not stand before the church. Jesus is saying to you and to me that our mission is take on, in culture, in society, the gates, that is, the very entrance, the very strength of hell itself, of the devil. I would suggest that our tradition as Christians has been to be very defensive. We build churches where we can go and hide from the world. We build Christian schools where we can send our kids so they're not exposed to the evil of the world. We build Christian colleges for the same reasons. And I think historically we've made a very serious mistake. What we've done, in my opinion, is made ourselves relatively ineffective 
in confronting the evils of our culture because we've hidden from the gates of hell. And I'd like to suggest that what Jesus is teaching his disciples here is he's saying, look, I've taught you for three years. It's now graduation in a couple of weeks. But the main point you should have learned is that your mission is going to be to leave here and take on the very power of the devil in the world you live in. The mission of the people of God is to take on in our culture and in our society the best or the worst that the devil has to offer. And Christian churches from Jesus' commission ought to be places where people are trained to go out and take on the devil. Christian schools ought to be places where young people are challenged to say, here's what's evil in our culture, here's what's bad in our culture. How will you confront it? Here's the problem in the media, here's the problem in education, here's the problem in science, here's the problem in medicine. What will you do? How will you, here's the problem in music. What will you do? Here's the problem in art. What will you do? What's your reaction? How in your life, or your experience, are the gates of hell found, and how are you able to react to them? In my own experience as, as a musician, um, I find myself going to places just like churches, and as we've been sitting here this evening, it's kind of dawned on me that if God chooses to use me and, and my talents that he gave me in my life, I, I think he's challenging me here to get out in the world and to face those, those gates of the devil to get out in the places that there's going to be people criticizing me and, and not liking what I do, but maybe I can influence some people in that way. Yeah. <clears throat> my neighbor who's not a Christian in the way that um, I kind of skirt some of those issues in a non-confrontational way, thinking, well, maybe he'll like me better some way uh, if I don't confront. I think each of us, in no matter what arena we're in, there's always a neighbor, um, a relative, or a friend uh, who might need that confrontation. And uh, that's the small way that we can make a difference. And you never know what that change in that person is going to do long term in terms of changing all of uh, society. We've got 60 million evangelical Christians in America. In my opinion, and I'm one of them, and I'm not any more effective than anybody else, but in my opinion, 60 million evangelical Christians ought to make a difference in the moral values of a culture and a society. I think what's very instructional to me is that Jesus took his disciples for three years first and spent three years preparing them to meet their world. Two comments about that. One, he taught them about all kinds of things they were going to face, and they weren't facing them yet, in a way. He gave them practical experience day by day, but it was in a controlled setting. Then he sent them out. But he also said at that point, I'll give you my Holy Spirit so that you'll remember everything you learned when you need it. Now there's two things about that. One, you need to learn it. If you haven't learned it, his Holy Spirit won't bring it to your mind when you need it. And two, when you have been trained, now you have been willing to go out. And I love Christian education, and I love Christian colleges, but they need to be staging areas to go out, not defensive areas that teach us how to hide. That's my concern. In my opinion, what Jesus sent the disciples out to do was what they had been gifted and trained to do. For some of you, it's to be a doctor or a musician. For others of us, it's to do ordinary jobs. The key is wherever you see what's not God's way at work in what you've been called to be, you need to take it on.
in your attitude, in your words, in how you honestly do your work, whatever it is. But all of us need to confront what's not God's everywhere we see it. It's been called the holy city. It's been called the center of the earth. A city whose origins date back a thousand years before the time of Jesus, when God gave this piece of land to King David, and he made it the religious and political capital of the people of Israel. Even today, Jerusalem is a vibrant, living city. It's a city you can walk in. It's a city you can experience. But sometimes, because of all the people who live here, and all the things that go on every day, it's very hard to see what it may have looked like during the times of the Bible. For that reason, a model of the city of Jerusalem from the time of Jesus has been constructed. Using the resources of the Bible, the Mishnah, the Jewish writers, including Josephus, and the discoveries of the archaeologists, this model gives us insight into what Jerusalem looked like, particularly in the Common Era, at the time of the Romans, at the time of Herod, and significantly for us as Christians at the time of Jesus. And so in the next few minutes, we'd like to go through this model and begin to show you the life and death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus as it can be seen through the eyes of the Bible, but particularly the Bible as it's set in this holy city, the city of David. Jesus, the city of Jerusalem had expanded greatly and was composed of several different sections or districts divided by walls or natural features. On the eastern ridge, David's hill or the Ophel, was the section of the city known as David's city. In the Tyropian Valley, just to the west of it, was the lower city, home to most of the ordinary people at the time of Jesus. On the higher western hill was the district known as the Upper City. Here, wealthy Greeks and Romans lived. Here, Herod had his mansion. Just to the north, divided by a wall built by King Herod, sometimes known as the First Wall, was the market section, or the business district of the city. Outside the wall that surrounded the market section, a newer section of Jerusalem was being built. Here, wealthy Greek and Roman people built large villas, expanding the city further to the north. The oldest part of the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' time was the city of David. Located on a narrow ridge to the eastern side of the city, this small section enclosed approximately 10 acres. Not many people lived here and yet it was a very significant part of the city of Jerusalem. It had been, after all, the home, the capital of the great King David. It was also located immediately south of the Temple Mount. So anyone who chose to come up to the presence of God, to go up to the temple to worship,
pass through the city of their great king in order to do so. The most heavily populated section of the city of Jerusalem was known as the Lower City. This section of Jerusalem may have been home to as many as 30 to 40,000 people. Some scholars believe that Herod's Hippodrome Arena horse racing track was located in the lower city. On the southern end, the Pool of Siloam, the main water source for the people of Jerusalem. Water from the spring of Gihon passed through the tunnel created at the time of King Hezekiah under David's city and entered the pool. The highest district of the city of Jerusalem was on the western hill, and it was called the Upper City. It was probably the most beautiful, the most impressive part of the city of Jerusalem. It was home to people who were wealthy, both Jews and Gentiles. Along its western side, Herod had built a magnificent palace, which overlooked the entire city of Jerusalem. The most dominant feature of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was this large temple mount here spread out at the highest point on the ridge we know as Mount Moriah. Originally God had instructed Solomon, or David actually, and then his son Solomon to build the temple somewhere in this area and became the central focus of the Jewish religious faith. When Herod came along and decided to reconstruct or remodel, however you want to refer to it, this temple mount, Herod decided that the area that he had to work with wasn't large enough. And Herod expanded it to make it large enough for the volume of pilgrims and for the kinds of activities that he wanted to go on here. And what you're seeing then is a reconstruction of that temple mount. What Herod did was to build a series of retaining walls. This one on the eastern side, that one there over on the western side, running along on both sides of that ridge, which you can imagine running down the middle beneath the floor. On the northern end, he ended the Temple Mount with a retaining wall, and on the southern side, the most massive retaining wall of all, which may have been as high as 200 plus feet at some points. He then filled that area in level with his retaining wall. He built a floor, making the whole area flat, then continued his wall higher until at last he had enclosed this entire area referred to as the Temple Mount. The size is staggering. It's just amazing how huge this area is. The Temple Mount itself was more than 1,200 feet long, four football fields plus in length. It was over 800 feet wide, just an enormous enclosure that would hold literally hundreds of thousands of the pilgrims who came here for Passover and for Pentecost and for the fall festivals, including Jesus and the disciples at certain times in history. It's made of that distinctive Herodian style of architecture or of construction. Just look at the joint. It's almost, if you take a, a credit card like this, look at that. And it literally, there's weathered a little bit, but it literally will not go in between there. There's a row here of stones that are absolutely the most immense building stones that have ever been found. Now if you look up there, you'll see the height of that stone. What you're seeing here has been broken. It actually goes up 
all the way 10 feet 6 inches high from this level to up under where the beams are there 10 feet 6 inches they are between 11 and 14 feet thick and 45 feet long this stone if it's 11 feet thick would weigh 570 metric tons we don't really even have equipment without special design today that can lift something that big and look at the length and that that was cut and brought to this place and put together so that there's absolutely no joint it is just a perfect fit and to take a 570 metric ton stone and put that in place imagine the technology and the design that that took to be able to do that i suspect in my opinion that when the disciples were marveling at the stones this is probably where they were somewhere in this area standing here and these stones remember do you remember how high they were from the from the bedrock level i mean these stones weren't like at ground level these stones were 40 50 60 feet up in the wall look at above your head look at the size of the stones in that arch some would think that in this temple mount behind this wall here there's a mountain that comes up like this to a point but there's a lot of open area where the platform stands on the mountain and the mountain itself has been cut out to have uh, tunnels and cisterns and poles and caves who knows what's behind here some think possibly the remains of solomon's temple ezra and nehemiah's temple both of which completely have disappeared nothing ever been found whatever happened to them we don't know are they buried we don't know but imagine what an archaeologist would give to be able to take this fill out of here and to get into that mountain and to begin to discover what's there. The other comment I would make, this is a typical entrance gate. So far the gates you've been seeing are all later. It's very hard to know what they look like. But this is a typical gate. This is only a single gate. Yesterday we stood by the double gates, but all Turkish or Crusader. Look at the size of the gate that Herod made. then added to that structure by building a colonnade around the outside and you can see there across from us all of the marble columns that he constructed just inside the wall in order that this floor might be supported on one end by the columns and on the outside end by the wall itself creating a huge open mall area on this southern end he added even more glory above the colonnade above this floor Herod added more columns and above the columns a roof and you can see the structure of the roof here with the tiled roof standing on those glorious uh, marble columns with even a second story and that colonnade on the southern end became known as the royal stoa or the royal porch a place where the bible tells us the early christians met actually the church in the book of acts met there for some time some would even say the story of Jesus and his discussion with the rabbis and the scribes at the time of his first Passover took place there. One more feature that I would refer to on the outside of the platform itself would be this gate. Today we know this particular area as the beautiful gate or more commonly called by pilgrims the Golden Gate. It was the eastern entrance to the Temple Mount, the main ceremonial entrance. Now we need to remember that today's beautiful gate is actually above this one because the city has of course grown as cities will do. The destruction of the gate of Jesus' time is actually down underground.
this eastern side, there was a place where there was a lower platform like this and a main gate. And that's the gate the Bible calls the Golden Gate or the Beautiful Gate. Now you're actually sitting inside of the place where the gate is, so you're seeing a gate from inside. Notice that in typical fashion, this gate is a room. Remember how we walked through the gate chambers and I kept telling you it was a room? Here you can see an example of what that room looked like. In the Christian tradition, this is a significant place for two reasons. One is that there's a story in the New Testament of the apostles Peter and John coming to this gate, and as they walked in this gate to go up to the courts here to pray, there was a man sitting in the gate begging, and he asked for money. And Peter and John said, we don't have any money, but what we have we give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Be healed. Remember, they healed the man, and that would be right here at the gate called Beautiful. We also know that around the outside of this court, under the area called the Colonnade, the buying and selling went on, connected with what was needed for the temple itself. Buying and selling of sacrifices, the inspection of animals, and the changing of money. Now some say the buying and selling went on in the northern end, near the gate where the sheep were brought in for slaughtering. Others say it was more on the southern end, under the roof of the royal stoa. What we do know is that immediately after his triumphal entry, Jesus entered these courts and drove out the buyers and sellers. The next thing that he did immediately was to drive out the buyers and sellers. Implying, at least it seems to me in the text, that the place where the buying and selling went on was in proximity to the gate that he entered. Now we happen to know that the buying and selling went on primarily in this outer area called the Court of the Gentiles. And I think that helps to understand something about what made Jesus so angry. Because you see, in the Jewish rabbi's tradition, they said, you may buy and sell. You may sell religious things. You may buy and sell animals and incense and things to offer and so on as long as we do it in the Gentile court. Let's not do it in the courts where the Jewish people go up to pray. Let's not interfere with the Jewish people praying. Let's do it in the Gentile court. Now, I think that's the primary source of Jesus' anger. I don't think Jesus was angry because they were buying and selling. I think Jesus was angry because they had the nerve to suggest that it was okay to disrupt what went on among the Gentiles. And let me show you why I think that. Here's the passage. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area. He began driving out those who were buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? And you have made it a den of robbers. And it seems to me that the focus of that passage was Jesus' reference my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. In fact, the quotation that he's making there comes from Isaiah 56. And in that chapter, Isaiah says, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Okay? So the focus would be that Jesus came here and said, how do you dare disrupt these folks from their opportunity to worship God with that kind of attitude? It's the house of prayer for all nations, not just for Jews. The second thing I'd like to note, it's important to me that we understand that the opposition to Jesus came not from the average person, 
probably not even from the Pharisee class of people, with few exceptions, but came primarily from the temple authorities. This was an area under the control of the Sadducee group of people. They had been given their place of power at that point, supported by the Romans, and they were comfortable in most senses with life as it was. And Jesus coming here was very much a confrontation with the authority that ran this temple, and coming to those columns and, and driving out the buyers and sellers and hitting at the very economic base of the temple itself and of the temple authorities would have been a direct challenge to those people. And we know then it was the chief priest and his assistants who became responsible for plotting the death of Jesus. Now between the court of the Gentiles and the next court is a small, low wall called Sarek, or the balustrade. Now the function of that wall was to create a clear division between those who were Gentile, those who were out here, and those who belonged to the covenant with God's people who could pass through the openings in the balustrade, in the fence, and could climb the steps and go into the inner courts to participate in the temple itself. It may very well be that when Paul writes that Jesus Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, he may have been referring to exactly this structure. So if we go from the Gentile court and we go past that balustrade, past that fence and climb the steps, we enter into the next court. Now you'll notice that court has four smaller courts in the corner. The larger area, just at the top of the steps, is called the Court of the Women. Now that name did not refer to the fact that only women could go there. The name referred to the fact that that's as far as the women went in their participation in the temple function. In that court, the main worship services of the temple took place, and the priest would officiate in those worship services at the top of those semicircular steps that you see just on the far side of the women's court, right in front of the gate. In the case of the early Christians, the Christians worshipped daily in the courts of the temple, probably referring them to the court of the women. Now, the four inner courts also had special function. The one in the lower left is called the Nazarite court. And that was a court set aside for people who were living examples of separation. All of us are supposed to be separated from sin. So in order to keep that separation theme alive, the temple itself had a court for those who had taken a vow of separation. On the right is the chamber of the court of the wood, where wood was kept for the sacrificial fires and for producing the coals that were used on the incense offering. On the left side here is the court of the oils, where various kinds of materials were kept for incense offerings and such. And on the right, the court of the lepers, where lepers could go and participate in temple function without mixing with the crowd because of their uncleanness, or where they could go to find a priest who could pronounce them clean in the case of leprosy having been cured or healed. To the west side of the court of the women, you see a beautiful gate called the Nicanor Gate. To the left of that gate, you see the ramp of what was the holy altar, that huge sacrificial area just inside and that court where that altar stands was known as the court of the Israelites. And that would be the place to which Jewish men who were of age to be religiously responsible could go to participate in the sacrificial system that went on here. The altar was made of stones that had not been cut by tools according to God's commandments in the book of Exodus. And all of the sacrificial offerings that went on here went on at the top of that altar daily day and night for all those who came to find fulfillment of God's promise that he would forgive sins. Just beyond the court of the Israelites was the temple itself, built of 
the best marble Herod could find of three different types of marble, built as one of the most glorious buildings probably in the whole world at the time, certainly in all of Herod's construction, that center of the faith of the Jewish people. You notice in front of that temple two large columns, actually half columns against the face of the temple itself, made of a different colored marble. Those columns were a copy of the columns God had told Solomon to put in the temple in the Old Testament. They were named Yaquin and Boaz, stood out in front of Solomon's temple, and Herod replicated them with those marble half columns against the face of his temple. Very likely that in the Jewish understanding, they represented the feet of God. The Bible talks about God's throne being in heaven and the earth being his footstool, and to their minds, those columns represented the place where his feet came down and actually rested on this earth, because after all, that temple represented the place where God himself lived. If you went in through that huge entrance, you would come to the first court or the first inner room called the holy place, and at the table of showbread, the altar of incense where Zechariah had been told that the birth of his son would be the birth of the one who would prepare for the coming of the Messiah. And then beyond the huge veil that hung down from the ceiling, the holiest place of all, the Holy of Holies, the place that represented the very presence of God. And the symbol there, the profound symbol that at the moment of the death of Jesus, that veil separating that most inner court, accessible only to the highest of the priests, suddenly ripped or was torn and now there was access to the very presence of God and making even more incredible our understanding as Christians the fact that God comes and lives inside of us and we have become his temple.